Welcome to Parent and Well Podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I am Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you are listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Shane Niemeyer. Shane is a motivational speaker, elite triathlete racing Ironman and 70.3 distances, full-time strength and endurance coach, and the author of The Hurt Artist, My Journey from Suicidal Junkie to Iron Man. He has interacted with hundreds of parents and thousands of adolescents on topics related to substance abuse, wellness, fitness, criminal justice, and mental and emotional well-being. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Doc, for having me. I'm really... I'm really excited about who you are and everything that you do, truly. So I appreciate being here. Yeah. Thank you. So I want to start by saying that um, I just finished your book this last weekend, and I really enjoyed it. I think it really has a message of hope and inspiration, but there's a there's a deep authenticity and humility. I think it leaves people with a sense of humanity. And so I know you can't recap your book in this podcast, but if you were going to share your story with our audience, what would you say? <laughs> I guess a penny to her would, would be to say that I had kind of a Tra- just tragic adolescence and adulthood. Um, I was in and out of institutions as a consequence of my internal environment. And um, and then, you know, I had the good fortune of surviving a, a suicide attempt. I had the, uh, the further good fortune of, yeah, surviving everything that I'd been through intact. And then failed to suicide attempt was in prison and I was able to use my time in prison to reconfigure myself uh, day by day and week by week and and kind of kick off a process that I I still rely on today. Being somebody who studied risk and resiliency and protective factors in families and young people pretty much my whole life, what do you think it was that made it possible for you to be successful in implementing this plan that you put together and then being able to like go out into the world after you're released and continue to stay focused on that? I think I think there was a lot of things. Um, I, I can't, had a really unique experience, and I count myself really lucky. That suicide attempt produced a perspectival shift, and that I had came through it. I had come through it intact, and it, it was a really formative moment in such a way that when I think about it, it's it's not that it's not that far away. I can remember what that what it was like to feel like you're on fire, and then think that that everything that you're done, you just couldn't cope anymore, and, and then to survive that that was a really not only a really lucky and fortunate moment for me, but it ushered in a, a sea change in my life. And and then when you're at the bottom, your perspective completely shifts, and everything looks up. And you know I, there was the sense that I didn't have anything to lose, and that many things occurred to me over the course of, of time. And, and uh, I could rely on some of my resourcefulness that I had on the streets. I felt like if I could just shift those in a different direction, that that maybe I would be able to fight through a lot of things. And that moment in particular, and being so bottomed out, um, everything is up from there. And and then still to this day, I can look back and I remind myself like how how things can go. Yeah, and um, I I remember reading about your description of your relationship with your family. Mm. and how much that changed even from when you were younger 
mm. to later yeah. um, in life. And I know that that sometimes is like you, you look at things a certain way when you're a kid and you mm. don't necessarily have the maturity to understand mm-hmm. your parents. But I found it interesting how as a kid you felt a little bit like this was a harsh environment mm. and kind of was hard on you. Mm-hmm. And then as you got older, you developed a relationship with your, your father. That yeah, so that's strong. interesting. My instinct was just I don't care why I am the way I am. I just want to move forward and what does that look like? And in the book, St. Martin's attached an, a ghost writer that really forced me to examine my past. And it was one of the harder things I ever did. And it was really cathartic. And, and you you, real, you came to the realization that um, that violence perpetuates itself generationally. And I remember, you know, my, my dad was hard the first probably five or six years of my life. But, but I experienced, you know, a fraction of what he did. You know, what I realized with two little ones, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, is that you get out of the ground what you put into it. And to my father's credit, he, he really made an effort once he saw the manifestation of what he had put into the ground. He was always chasing it. He sought counseling. He got sober. Um, but it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It's another thing mm-hmm. that I've observed over time, you know, to an extent, right? You can't, it's an explanation. It was never an excuse for my behavior, but it's like, oh yeah, you know, normal, well-adjusted people don't end up in prison, sticking needles in their arm, homeless. Um, you know, all of the things that I that I signed myself up for yeah. were kind of, could probably be traced back to my, those early days, right? right. Uh, and, and I know you speak a lot about we're a product of our environment. Yeah. And so if you want to change outcomes, you have to change your environment mm-hmm. and how you think about things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was another shift, I think, in the book when you moved from um, training and working so hard physically and mm-hmm. having the ability, like you said, because of your experience on the streets and other things that you had experienced pain, mm-hmm. um, that you were able to kind of dive in and experience that high level of training mm-hmm. and put the pain aside. Mm-hmm. But the the conversations you were having in your head while you were running or the things that you started to think about and and realizing that, oh, my gosh, I have to actually work on me, (laughs) not just my physical ability Mm -hmm. to do this race. Yeah. So the training was my way to flog myself. And it was the way to take it was probably right. It was an extension of all of the anger that I had. It was more constructive than that than how I turned that behavior inward before but it was definitely still dis I'm sure it was disassociative and not healthy for a long time and then you arrive at a place where you need to be more than one dimensional and the anger is a tool at times but you're going to you're just going to be going to destroy yourself and dismantle yourself and so yeah so I could rely on that pain and I could go there and it enabled me to, to go deeper sometimes probably than some people because I knew, you know, when you're homeless, you know what it's like to be cold and when it's hot, you know what it's like to be hot and um, you're always you're always scrambling and running from one yeah. one dumpster fire to another. And so I, I could rely on that, but, um, but eventually it, it, it became clear that you want to be more. You want to be a per. You want to be... A, a person yeah. in the world that's m- more than just that one dimension, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also think that your perspective <clears throat> of looking at your life and what you'd experienced to that point and realizing that you felt like a drag on society or, or drag mm-hmm. on other people with the relationship that, that you had in your life mm-hmm. and turning that on its head and saying, how can I be a contribution to society? Mm. Sounds like that was a big piece of what helped you to get through this, but also stay with it. Yeah. The endurance athletics is inherently, there's so much self-concern and it's so, it's just just a selfish way to be. A lot of the things that occurred to me over time were were the result of reading, right? And and exposing yourself to new idea and opening up that availability bias because you only know what you know. You have no idea what you don't know. And, And that was a really insatiable thing for me. It was like, I needed to add new 
ideas into this broken system. But it was really clear to me that, uh, that I was a parasite, and I had been a parasite for so long. And the notion of emotional contagion is really important to me. And I was such trash for so long, and I had left such a bad taste in, taste in people's mouths. And all I did was take, 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 and such a vacuous way to be. Um, also, it's kind of selfish, right? That it, it pulls me out of my own self-concern, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, But it is really important to me that to the extent that I can, that I can contribute to the well-being of others, you know, in whatever way, even if it's just in a passing moment, right? Because you yeah. tra- smiles are transmissible. Eye contact is transmissible. Emotion is contagious. And it is something that I do take very seriously, yeah. Every now and then I'll have a thought, like I'll see someone and be like, wow, that's a really cool outfit or whatever, uh-huh. you know? I got into this habit where I would just start telling people when I ha- when I had that mm-hmm. thought instead of just keeping it in my head. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. They're surprised. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And it's this the way in which we can shape the world around us in every moment. Because one of the most salient features of being a human being is that you know, we're, pr- we're primarily emotional creatures. Yeah, that very thing is something that, that helps me a lot. Yeah. yeah, has them smile for a moment. Right. Like, wow, cool, somebody noticed. Yeah. So let's talk about parents. So prison provided a space for you, and it gave you structure and schedule and scaffolding to make big changes in your life. And I couldn't help but think that that's one of our biggest jobs as a parent, mm. is to provide that scaffolding for them so that they don't go just diving deep into things on their own mm. or from zero to 100, mm-hmm. you know, right away. So mm-hmm. so I'm, an example that might be being able to go out and live on your own as a young adult. It's not easy to just go from going to high school, not having a job, and then you just kick one out the door and say, good luck. So you have to provide that scaffolding mm-hmm. that gives them, you know, knowledge about how to get work and how to manage their schedule mm-hmm. and what kind of bills they're going to have to pay. And so I just kept thinking about all the scaffolding and all of the structure and the things that you had that helped you to be successful. Mm. And, and I wondered how you feel like that translates over into the way you parent. And mm. I know your kiddos are kind of young. Yeah. But, you know, what do you think about structure and, mm. and providing opportunities to grow? To, to your point, right, Doc, that uh, little kids, little problems. And I, I'm already thinking about, as parents, there's a many, many things that you don't understand about the world until you become one. And one of them is what love is. And then what fear is, right? You don't really understand those things until you're a parent. And and so I preface it by saying little kids, little problems, but I'm thinking down the road and thinking towards other things. And in my own life, again, we are products of our environment. And my old man, right, I was with him a lot. He, you know, he, he didn't have any tools and you can't serve from an empty vessel. And so that another way in which I've been really fortunate is, thank God, I married an you know, probably the most incredible person I've ever known. To say that she's a fantastic mom is an understatement. So I can look to her, thank God, for guidance, <laughs> right? Cause yeah. And, you know, we don't know if the house would be standing or if we'd all be alive if it was just left up to me. But but structure, I think, the way that I think of things is first that they're just little nervous systems and inputs drive adaptation. And, again, emotional contagion is a very real thing, and they just soak it up. So I learned really early that, you know, you need to control yourself. You need to resource yourself self Shane because you can't serve from an empty vessel is one thing um, the structure and consistency is important and then I think another thing that I'll always try to strike a balance between is never doing for them what they can do for themselves mm-hmm. to prepare yeah. the child for the road right yeah. don't prepare the road for the child I think as they grow older we all, we're always going to have standards that we all agree upon but yeah there's no doubt <laughs> what the, the the consequences I've experienced because of lack of structure Right. Right. And then another thing that I've noticed, because, again, my my kids are little, but noticing 
other parents trying to put structure into the system when the kid's in middle school or high school and there's been none before and you're trying to shove that genie back into a bottle, whew, yeah. that is yeah. a tough proposition. Um, so I think about those things, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That this, the work you're doing now is laying the groundwork right. for what it's going to be like when yeah. they're older and they really need you to have those conversations yeah. and be a support system for them. Right. Yeah. That's one of my personal passions is relationship development throughout the lifespan with your children and just how that shifts and what that looks like. Yeah. And I think you you nailed it. Like prevention work works best when you start doing the groundwork in the early days so mm-hmm. that when you get to the things that are real issues, you have you have something to There's start with. foundation, right? And it's the yeah. same for us. They're only two and four, but you know, the, the actions that I take today aren't just impacting their two and four-year-old selves, right? That's their selves distributed across time into the future. Yeah. Right, I love it. People don't always know or they feel like I'm not there yet. I don't need to get this information until I'm there. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that, you know, the yeah. sooner you can start arming yourself yeah. with knowledge about uh-huh. development, what's going on in the world, what kind of challenges these kiddos mm-hmm. face that, mm-hmm. that are different. What I see a lot is as parents, we come at something from our own experience. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's hard to understand what it's like to live in the world of social media and technology Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. our experience of that isn't there. We didn't have that. We weren't Mm -hmm. growing up playing with little learning tools when we were three. So having to pull back from that and say, okay, this was my experience, Mm -hmm. but this is what my kids are experiencing. And to your point about that, Gene Twenge and Jonathan Haidt and reading fundamentally different proposition developmentally, right? And... Again, I only know what I know, and there's so much that I don't know. So um, I better start arm, you know, like you said, <laughs> equipping myself, right? Right. Uh, it makes the journey a little more comfortable. <laughs> right. right. Not that you know every kid has their problems. I firmly believe that that no child grows up and you just have this perfect everything went great because uh, problems are relative. Right. You know, so for one parent, they might be really upset because their child failed a class or got a bad grade on Mm -hmm. a test. And for another parent, the problems are a little heavier, a little different. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of have to meet Mm -hmm. them where they are and Mm -hmm. and work through it with them. Right, right. And I I know one of the things I've heard, um, because we do quite a bit of work around substance use with with Penn. um, And one of the things that I've heard people say a lot is that two things, that having someone who just sticks with them no matter what, like tell them they love you, they stay with you, they don't enable you necessarily. You know, in fact, most people that we've had like on panels sharing their experience of recovery and and how they're staying sober say that one of the things that actually had them get sober was their parents saying, I can't, you can't live here anymore Mm -hmm. if this is how it's going to be. And so that kind of tough love in a sense, but still being there and saying, I'm here, I'm here Mm -hmm. when you can get your stuff together. That's right. Yeah. But the other is that when they come to this with that place of fear, it's a lot harder for them to be braced in reality of what's going on with their kids. Mm -hmm. And so that's why education matters so much so that you can not be in this place of I'm all alone. I'm scared. What do I do? Yeah. And to your point, a couple of things that I think about a lot is, you know, we know that fear and, and negative emotional states are constraining and narrowing. Right. And they, they so focus you on the problem at the exclusion of potential solutions and remaining curious. Education is everything, right? Everything you read, everything you listen to, the great work that you're doing with, with a podcast, having putting talks on, you know, just providing resources. Every time you read or you expose yourself to a new idea, it's like putting a new tool in the belt that you have. And those tools enable you to interact with the world in a, in a much more dynamic way, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And the more you have, you can say, oh, this one will work for this situation. Oh, right. This one will work for this situation right. instead of just having the same approach for everything. Exa yeah, that's yeah. what I, at least that's what I think. Easy. It's yeah. in theory. My guys are little, right? But yeah. it's, I've seen yeah. it work in the world that way. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I think really relates, at least especially as we get into adolescent development, where teens are really trying to develop their own identity and trying to figure out who they mm -hmm. are. I was struck by the conversation about this disease model for mm. substance use, you mm. know, and and also the labeling that takes place. Mm. And it, to, the, to that extent, you even said when you started doing triathlons that you preferred saying, I do triathlons mm. versus I'm a triathlete. Mm-hmm. And I think that translates over to kids, too, because mm. the more we tell them who they are, mm -hmm. the more they <laughs> internalize that. Uh, this is something that I've thought about across many different domains, but so I should be careful what I say here. But yeah, the disease model, it, it, it always seemed to me that you're handing out crutches and you're giving someone an excuse to fall back on this. And I could yank you into the swamp of controversy, which I won't do, but, but it just seemed to me that <clears throat> in, in the, with experiences with psychiatrists, for instance, we're so compelled in behavioral sciences, for instance, to, uh, to give labels, right? Uh, you have attention deficit disorder marked with hyperactivity. Your disorder, what does that say on every level of analysis? Stand guard at the well of your mind because people are always poisoning it. And I, I think about identity, one thing we know about human, as human beings, so much of how we're expressing ourselves in the world is directly tied to the senses of identity that we have. And a lot of times we're not even aware of some of those ad identities that we have. Yeah. I'm many things simultaneously. I'm a father, I'm an athlete, I'm a coach. Sometimes I have the great fortune to speak and I was an author and all of these, all of these things. Um, but I, at times I could have been ad, am, am I an addict? Am I, you know, am I, <laughs> do I have these psych? Probably I'm in and out of psychiatric states at times, but um, one thing we know is that we act consistent with the sense of identity that we have. And a lot of us aren't even aware of those different identities that we carry around with us mm -hmm. and, and that we're tethered to them. And so I didn't want to be like, hey, and if this works for a lot of people and it's great, but I always struggled with, hi, my name's Shane and I'm an alcoholic. For, that's how I'm identifying myself and it just seems such a limiting way to, if that's the primary identity that I have, the how far am I going to get? Yeah. And I think that you can, that ethic applies to us generally. Yeah, so, so that, that thematically is really important to me. You can see all the ways in which that, that's applicable, and we got to be careful of the stories we tell ourselves, right? Right. Because then they become your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, a lot of the resiliency research actually talks about if you're going to, to put some kind of a label on your child, have it be something that's authentically them and recognizing the strengths that they have. Mm -hmm. So saying something like, you're such a kind person. That was nice of you to, to take that bag of groceries mm -hmm. to the car for that woman. Mm -hmm. You know, where you're pointing out a strong, positive attribute that's actually how they show up. Right. And in that way, then they start to internalize what makes them a good person mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. can build resiliency. So I think there are times when it can be appropriate, but we have to be really careful because kids, will t they'll take it on and they'll be... Well, if everyone says that's what I am, that's what I'm going to be. Yeah, and, you know? and I, I have a really strong, obviously I'm really biased because I had I was given a lot of labels over the years, right? Inmate, yeah, you know. Number. Yeah, number, several psychiatric diagnoses, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how you feel like you will approach things when your kids do have difficult 
times mm. or they make mistakes? How do you want to approach that as they get older? Um, well, I hope I'm laying, I'm preparing the ground now, right? <laughs> I hope I'm setting the table. And I know my wife, you know, I hate to speak for her, but marrying someone like me, right? <laughs> like what her, her biggest fear, as you can imagine, is that the kids turn out like I did. And so what can we do? Right. We can what we what we can control is the environment. Right. We can't control whatever genetic component is associated with it. I mean, I love them so much. Right. And and they know that and we're we're together and you never want to be around someone as much as you want to be around. At least, again, that's going to change when they're teenagers, I'm sure. (laughs) But but I think I would just totally identify with the things that you said earlier is like. I may disapprove of the things that you do, but we are always going to be here, no matter what. And that I think that this, that we're going to have standards; they'll change, and and they're going to be context dependent. But we we're going to have standards that we agree to it in the family. And when you're not living up to those, we're gonna there's going to be some price to pay. I maybe naively think that that lo- just being loving and supportive and having some expectations of them, you know, pushing them towards developing their potential. Um, those are the things, at least in theory, uh, right now, the way that I want to be in the, with them is, to your point, like, we're going to be here regardless, right. right? But there are also expectations, yeah. um, and there's reasons why we want you to meet some of those expectations. Yeah, um, yeah. and sharing that with them. Yeah. I mean, kids respond well to knowing exactly why that's important to them. Mm-hmm. They want to understand it. They don't want to be treated like, especially teenagers, like I'm just being told what to do. Yeah, and they get a understand. say in it, and why? And this is why. Yeah. Because we are most fulfilled when we're when we're expressing more of our potential, right? It's more fulfilling, right? Kids being in sports, to an extent, performing academically, if that's one of their inclinations, right? Um, but I guess we'll see how they how, who they become too, right? right. And, and then you just yeah. You roll with it, right? You know? I think that's an important point actually, because even the research says having high expectations of your kids is one of the factors that builds resiliency. But those expectations have to match your child. Right. It can't be right. like I have a band kid who doesn't really like math, uh-huh. and I want this person to Good be luck. an excellent scholar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I also really liked your conversation about having an inner critic Mm. because I think that we as parents want to take a lot of responsibility for our kids and especially when they're struggling we can have that inner critic that's telling us what did I do this is my fault how do I fix this Um, and really beat ourselves up over it you know you did quite a bit of work to to get through putting that inner critic aside and what advice would you have for people Mm. my instinct is when things go wrong to first examine, try to try to examine objectively, what role did I play in this? And is there something that I could have done better? And so sometimes there's utility in that. And I think sometimes we get a little too much messaging that you're okay the way you are. And maybe, but but maybe not, right? I mean, how far in life are you going to get if you're just, ex- you know, and, and all, everything is context dependent. But, but sometimes you're not okay the way you are, right? And sometimes you do make mistakes. But then sometimes, you know, with other people, there's things that are just beyond your control. So I think you have to strike a balance between uh, taking, it, taking it easy on yourself, but then also, you know, is there something that I could have done better? Right. Is, there, is there a way in which that I contributed to this mess or, or, or whatever? Because you're a family system, so it's like, what can I do? Mm-hmm. What can I add? How can I better myself mm-hmm. that's going to allow me to show up better for my kid? Mm-hmm. 
And ultimately, yeah. like always the case is that water under the bridge is water under the bridge. But if you can minimize the same mistakes, if there were some moving forward, mm-hmm. then that's what you do. But yeah. but I'm a little less, for, I'm, I'm quite a bit less forgiving of myself than I used to be, right? And um, I assume that there's going to be things which, that are beyond our control, right? Yeah. Yep, definitely. It's all practice. We're giving them the practice zone to go out in the world. And as your kids get older, how much you will share with them about your own experience? Mm, That's something I should probably ask you, Doc, but I think (laughs) it was what it was. And I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it either, right? And um, so I'm I'm sure that I'll share a lot of it with them. And underneath, at the bottom of that, will be some of my fears, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, that's, that's the biggest fear. Is, you know, I definitely don't want my kids to endure the things that I did. Right. Setting aside the unmentionable things, the biggest fears, that's that's a big fear of mine. And so I think, even now I fight the instinct to be like, you know, mom drinks, I don't drink. Right? She doesn't, that's not, she drinks like twice a year or something. Right. But, um, <clears throat> but there will definitely be a time in being like, hey, we're all different. I don't know how, how you're going to interact with substances, but this is this is mine. And, um... Oof, I took I got scars to show for it. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely you're always thinking about that, right? Yeah. And and you're gonna you know share it with them. It's all they have to do is Google my name and uh, yeah, my and criminal record anyway. is written large. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you tell them the way things were and what you learned, and and then I think I think that I express my fear like God. They they know you love them so much that. Yeah. The, one of the most painful things that I'll have to pay attention to, God forbid that it ever unfolds that way, is, you know, did you play a role in that? There's only so much you can do, right? Mm-hmm. We can do what we can do, and that's what we're, we're I'll focus on. And then when the time comes, you sh- I'll share everything with them and, yeah. and what I learned and what my fears are, I guess. I think it's a question um, that parents have. They haven't gone through the extreme situations that you went through. Mm-hmm. But even just their own experience of whether or not they used a drug in high school or whether or not they had these experiences that they wonder, should I be sharing this? Am I, if, if I share this, am I endorsing it? Am I saying that it's okay? Mm-hmm. And I think that what we're talking about here is that it's not necessarily about whether or not you share it, but how you share it mm-hmm. and what the message is underneath mm-hmm. that so that you're careful mm-hmm. not to like say... Oh, yeah, I did that in high school. Like, it's a mm-hmm. free pass. You know right. what I mean? It's so context-dependent. And, and look, there's some experiences that people have. You know, look at all the research now with psychedelics. Right. God, you have to strike this balance. And we know that most kids aren't going to get out of high school without partaking, you know. And, and I think it could be a missed opportunity if you don't treat it with the seriousness it deserves. But then also being like just making it clear whether you condone it or not, you know, that's a personal thing. But um, that you're there to talk them through that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I guess my instinct is I don't want my kids to hide it from me and we'll, we'll be pretty upfront about it. Yeah. And then it's always like, you know, with adolescence, at least I've observed and I lived this out. God, to the extent that you can, but show me your friends and I'll show you your future, right? Yeah. And whew, kids get in that wrong peer group. That becomes their new familial kind of association. And um, man, that's always a rough one, isn't it? Yeah. Because we don't get to pick their peer group. Right, right. So we have to uh, we have to hope that the foundation that we've given them gives them some, some standard to which they choose who they spend time with. But I also think it works to talk to them about that. You know, I think as they start to get to a place where they can understand that, mm-hmm. saying, you know, you're most like the five people you spend the most time with yeah. is an okay thing to tell them. You know, yeah. um, you're choosing this path by spending time with these people because if you were spending time with these other people, what activities would you be doing there 
we always used to talk about it like a circle. Mm -hmm. Like you've got this circle on this side on the right, and you've got another circle on the left, and you whatever you choose is going to put into place what the next opportunity is for you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you can't be on the right circle and say, I want the things on the left circle. You've got to actually put yourself over there. Yeah. Yeah. I know that you talked about how you start to be like the friends that you're spending time with, and you think it's normal. And I think for a kid, that experience is exacerbated because, <laughs> like, if they're hanging out smoking pot every day after school and all the kids they hang out with are mm -hmm. also hanging out smoking pot every day after school, mm -hmm. then they think, oh, everyone hangs out and smokes pot every day after school. Mm. And I've heard other people who work in substances say, do whatever you have to do to pull them out of that and show them a different place, show them a different environment. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a tricky one because you can't choose for them. That's one of my other biggest fears, right, is, like, Again, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. And that, like everything that, that you just said, is 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 so true. The opposite thing happened in our home, where maybe they had a child that we thought was kind of a risky kid mm -hmm. that they were spending time with, and so we would pull that kid in. Mm. Yeah. And say, okay, yeah, so we're smart. gonna work on having peer pressure the other direction. We're gonna show you this this other side. It's bi-directional. That, that yeah. it works both ways, and f to like to your point, for sure. I remember when I was in prison, I, I know that I'm going to stop drinking and using drugs. Like, that's kind of where you have to start. But that availability bias is so strong that all you see is all there is. And you're just, I was thinking to myself, Jesus, if I don't drink and at least smoke weed, who in the hell in the world am I going to hang out with? And then now I'm like, of course, we're in Colorado. I know a lot of people that smoke weed, and but I just don't. It's like so it's un, it's unfathomable in a way, right? right? Yeah. It's it is pretty crazy. And you do see that you hear that a lot from kids. It's like, you know, they think that's what what it is. I think we all have different sides to us. And we all have kind of ugly sides to mm. us. And we live in a society in a world where you have to put your good sides forward mm. and you want to pretend you don't have any bad mm. sides, right? <laughs> and I felt like as I read what you were sharing and in part because there's so much humility in the way that you talk but that, you know, it's okay to embrace that you have this kind of ne negative trait or this impulse that you can't control or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Because the more we resist it, the more we can't have an effect on it. Mm. Boy, we, we try to tell ourselves we're supposed to be perfect or we're, yeah. not, we're not allowed to have these negative things. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I always, even when, it, when you're giving a talk or even right now, you want to caution people like, look... Uh, it may sound like I have all the answers. I'm far better than I was, but my faults are on full display, <laughs> right? And and one thing that was really instructive for me when I got out of out of prison and so much of our suffering, you know, adolescence in particular, but so much of our suffering is associated with the social comparisons that we make, right? And because we're interacting with the world where so many people posture, right? And they pretend that they're ha they have it all together, but but one thing that was really instructive is like, oh, yeah. Like I, and by now I've interacted with some people that operated at a pretty high level. And everyone underneath it all is, you know, we're all confronting the same things, right? Are, we all have the same fears and insecurities and hopes and dreams. And, um, and we all are faulted, right? It, it, we're messy. And, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> yeah. we're all contending with our own corner of hell. And so um, I do take comfort in the fact that, that everyone's just trying to, they're just trying to do it. Um, and some are just doing better than others, right? Some are a little more awake and aware. But, but that was one thing that produced a lot of suffering for me when I got out because, because of my I, senses of identity. Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a convict. 
I'm a multiple time convicted felon. I've been, you know, I have all of these identities and, and I'm trying to be a different way in the world. And here's all of these people up here that are t totally different. And then in, in pretty short order, you see that, oh yeah, you're not actually not doing that bad, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're not, you could be doing way worse and yeah. everyone is contending with their own things, right? So. But, um, and, and that's something I see with kids a lot is there's this sense of they, they forget because, we're, you know, our identity is this core feature of being human. We see the world through our own eyes. Me, 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 I, I, I. And in doing so, because we're centrally located, we're embodied, we're always evaluating the world on this scale or a gradient in ourselves in relation to everyone else. And what is what we bias ourselves towards is all the things that are wrong with our life or all the things that we don't have, totally at the exclusion of everything that's equally available is all the things that we have, all of us, that we take for granted. Um, and I remember being in prison, I was like, Jesus, one, I mean, I can't wait just one day to talk to a woman again or touch grass or climb a tree, all the things that, yeah. that I find myself still taking for granted. What's interesting is when you show your belly, to a room of like suits or whatever, you immediately see the walls just come down um, because there's this you, there's this establishment of identification, all right? Um, because yeah. we all have our have our trash, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's that's been one thing that's really interesting to me is, in, and I guess in some ways it's really served me. Um, I, I'm more measured about the way that I talk about myself. Uh, I used to be over Sherry, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Just> care. <laughs> like, yeah, you take it easy, bud. <laughs> Pump the brakes. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. If you could say something to your teenage self, knowing what you know now, mm. what would you say? I would say, I think I would say something along the lines of, God, I don't know what, what I would say. I was really angry, and that anger got turned inward. I was a really self-abusive, right? Um, you know, I mean, things were so set in motion, I would just caution against all of that anger and animosity. Yeah. And, um, but it, to sound, I don't want to sound contrite, but I wouldn't have taken any of it back, right? Because the most massive char characters that I know are seared with scars, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it gave me a, a lot of insight that, um, that I'm glad I have, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a depth of experience that some people don't have. Uh, I went through a lot of, <laughs> a lot of tragedy to get where, where I am. But I, unfortunately, I think that my, my teenage self, that um, there was no way that you were getting through there. And then as time progressed, I, I would have gone back even, relax, uh, relax. Yeah, having kids has given me a great perspective on what is really important, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> relax and... And, and be be more aware of how you're feeling and um, be more aware of that chatter that's in between your ears and how it's manifesting itself outwardly. And, um, yeah. I have a joke um, that when I get that way with myself, I, I say, man, you are in a bad neighborhood. This is a bad neighborhood up here. You've <laughs> got to get out of it, like, as quick as you can. <laughs> uh -huh. Lock the doors and leave, you yeah. know, because it's not going to be productive. That's right. You know, it's not going to help you get what you actually want. I think that's normalizing, you know, to really think about how your experiences are the thing that have, they've made you who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very healthy to look at it like I wouldn't take it back, you know. I, I lived through it. I mm. made it. And um, Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, God, it sounds, I think everyone has to say that, right? It's this, because if you didn't, if you didn't ascribe some meaning to it, whew, man. Yeah. If I didn't put that in a shelf some way that has some utility in it, you would yeah. go insane because because it was pretty bad. it was yeah. pretty it was pretty bad I mean and then even now like thinking about who I am I'm I'm fundamentally I am who I am I'm am an extension of that 15 year old boy or you know 16 year old boy or and that little child but over the years I've I've just equipped myself um, and so now when I've get yanked into the suffering and, and, and anxious states and stress which I still do right right. I'm up against it, you know, a lot. And um, and even knowing what I know, I can observe it and I can pull myself out of it faster, but I still endure it, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, I don't behave the way that I used to as a consequence of my internal environment. It's interesting to think about, though. You know, you, I think, found purpose beyond your living circumstances. And I've heard other people say that that's the thing that, gets them through very hard times, whether it's substances or other tragic mm. events, is like being able to look at your life and say, it has to have meaning, it has to have purpose at some level. I think I think many things are true simultaneously. Like, it is true to look at the world, it can be, the absurdity of life. You, you can look at the world and it's true that we're on this rock that's floating around the abyss and our time here is finite and nothing that we do matters. Um, and it's, there's some truth to that. There could be. When I was abusing drugs and on the streets, that's definitely how I looked at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, and at times, in, at time, hard times since, I've, I felt the pull towards that dark side. And that's one way to look at the world. But man, but it's also equally true that that you're here. And uh, I prefer, to, I personally prefer to believe that uh, that this is true for all of us. That we have a we have a certain amount of potential across several different domains that when we're expressing and developing that potential more we're more engaged and you feel more alive and then and that life is about we right not me and um to the extent that i can before i die between the two terminals of my life and and whenever i whenever my life is over that i could be if i can be a resource and so in order to do that i need to I need to fill my vessel and add as many resources to myself, right? To st- continually strengthen and improve myself, to understand more, to be more, so that I can contribute more, right? Like, yeah. if that's what a source is. Like, the sun is a source, right? And and it has this this gravity. And then if you acquire, you become a resource over time, you pull satellites in your orbit and you can bask them in whatever light and warmth that you mm-hmm. have, As mm-hmm. I, I guess, one way that I think about it. So that's how I choose to look at it, yeah. right? That I've been given this incredible second chance at life and um that i have a responsibility to to do as much as i can with whatever capability that i do have yeah Mm -hmm. speaking of which since you wrote your book because it's been a few years Mm. what what are you doing well i'm um boy what am i doing i'm i'm speaking a little bit which is great which i do love i wrote a book and we have two boys and, and like i said i really did marry this most incredible woman and so my, my life is is great I, i'd still train a couple t- i try to work out a couple times a day to keep my head level um and then what is an adjunct to the speaking which always felt like you show up and you make people feel a certain way right you're giving them a warm bath mm-hmm. but it was always interesting to me like what if what if underneath that because n- now what here now i've given you all of this in an hour 
and you don't even know what to do with it. And what did I even really give you except for a feeling and some time, you know, an intensity. And then I'm going to walk away and, and you're cracked open. So what I'm interested in doing now is I guess I'm, a, I guess I'm an entrepreneur now. And um, we're working on a, a suite of mobile apps, the first one being um, a fully integrated approach to, to, to fitness. And why we're doing a fitness app is because it, before we do the others is because I think one of the most immediate ways to change how we think and feel is to change the state of our body, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're embodied. And I think we can do it better. So that's, that's the first of a couple problems we're trying to solve is can we create a well-being resource that has utility? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's in line with what I, what I hope I'm doing in life is contributing to the well-being of others, right, on as broad a scale as possible. So, so at some point when I'm speaking, you can be like, oh, yeah, here's this thing that you can do. And if you don't know, it's a, it's a resource for you to, to enact in your own life. And, and as a consequence of that, you're going to feel better, right? That's my, my biggest hope in terms of, like, professionally, Yeah. I guess, yeah. What are the other sites, what other apps do you have besides the physical? Right. So we don't have anything besides the physical, but what I'm, what I'm interested in maybe more than the physical is um, mental and emotional states, right? And obviously there's a ton of mindfulness apps out there, but I think... It would be really cool to solve for the problem of getting people, being, being aware of how they're thinking and feeling and what they're doing while they're doing that, and then also somehow creating a space for people to talk about how they want to be in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Because so m many times we forget that we get a right, you know, it's our stories being written for us largely because we're stumbling blindly through our life, and we forget, hey, you can stop and you can sit down and you can map out how you want to be, you know, as a mother or a daughter or a sister or a father or a husband and professionally, you know, that I think sometimes we forget that we get a we get to pick and choose how we want to be in the world, but in order to do that, we have to identify what that looks like. Yeah. That that's something that I'm really interested in if we can get this other thing going, right? The first flywheel that will yeah. generate um pushing towards that problem because fit to, to me fitness is really pretty straightforward right there's an aerobic component and a strength component a mobility component and a motivational component yeah. um, and nutrition supports all of that so I think we got to we're working towards that which is coming along and then in the future my hope is to do the well-being piece mm -hmm. yeah the mental and emotional that's awesome you've done a lot around fitness training so if you were going to share like the benefits of fitness yeah because I think there are already benefits to your mental and emotional mm -hmm. well-being, mm -hmm. even without that other component. Mm -hmm. What would you say? I would say that for sure, I've examined the literature pretty thoroughly, that the most immediate way to change your mental and emotional state and regulate yourself is through exercise. That Because we are you know, governed by our nervous system, inputs drive adaptation. That if you are inert in life and static, you can invest your life with a little movement and things start to get better immediately that f the feedback is instantaneous and that cognitively the most powerful medicine well really the most powerful medicine that we know of is exercise right and that the aerobic exercise confers its own host of benefits and they're powerful and then strength training provides its own host of benefits which are equally powerful and when you combine them, we know that that's the only way that's ever been discovered to improve IQ, to improve cognitive health. Every system of the body, when it's bathed in the byproducts of exercise, gets better. And so um, 
I, you know, obviously I'm biased, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but yeah. but I think it's something I take very seriously. The problem is, it's not a pill, and uh, it's not something that you can just sit and talk about. You actually have to, like most things that are worthwhile in life, you have to pay the price if you want to secure the blessings, right? And so, yeah, put um, the work in, right? Yeah. I actually enjoyed that part of your book as well, just talking about exercise from the perspective of, okay, well, I can only do three push-ups right now, but I'm mm. going to do three push-ups, you know? Because I, I know people who choose not to exercise because they want to go from doing nothing to running a marathon, mm. you know, and you have to do the work, like you said, to what, get yourself there. When I think about that um, real quick, it would be like, you take someone who hasn't achieved anything, and then at, at least at the end of that six or eight push-ups and sit-ups, I had done something yeah and then but and then because exercise is so elastic and the response is so immediate you know within a couple weeks you know even the next time you work out things get better and then you progress to a point where um, there's always achievement in my day right now I can be stressed and I often am right trying to make all of these things work and you're doing things that you have no idea what you're doing right I don't know what I'm doing with technology and, and you know all of these things are going on in your head but at least I can take this moment and I've achieved something every day for myself and yeah. it just regulates and it discharges my anxiety and yeah. and I do think it's and the last thing I'll say without trying to evangelize everybody that's <laughs> listening to this is um, we know in, with as an as a in, intervention for depression and anxiety that um, that the the effects are more longer lasting and the benefits are as good or better than medications, right? right. So, right. so it is an agent physically, but it also is equally powerful, me, you know, in mental and emotional states. Yeah. Yeah. You have shared a few resources in our conversation, but you talk a lot in your book about authors that you think made a difference for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that they would be good resources for some of our listeners if they're wanting to dive into how do I be with myself? How do I heal? Mm -hmm. um, how do I create a new future and live in possibilities? Mm -hmm. what, what resources would you say are some of your favorites? Boy, well, that's a good one. I I'd have to set aside what I re I've read so much behavioral science and neuroscience. It's all I read is like yak affective neuroscience and the emotional life of the brain. You know, like uh, I read a lot of neuroscience, but I think some really powerful books are obviously Man's Search for Meaning was instrumental for me because it gave me perspective. Like, oh, you think you're suffering? No, man, you have no idea what suffering is. Mm. And so much of our suffering is perspective related, right? Man's Search for Meaning was really good. The Gulags of the Archipelago did the same thing. I read a lot of dark things that I don't um, flow. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's flow is a seminal work on how we can experience white moments. I read a lot of contemplative masters. Um, uh, you know, the Tibetan, the Tibetan book of the living and the dead. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and then for those that don't read, I, I could go on and on about books, but now we live in this era where look at this, what you're doing right now, Doc. Yeah. You can listen to things. Shane Parrish's The Knowledge Project is a good podcast. Obviously, this is a great podcast. I listen to a lot of Sam Harris and Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, and uh, you can always go on YouTube. And you just I'm, I'm just always trying to inputs drive adaptation. Um, but... 
but books, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning was pretty pivotal. And then, and then sometimes great literature challenging yourself just to, um, but those are some. Yeah, I wouldn't, yes. I wouldn't beat you guys over the head with the stuff that I've read over the last couple <laughs> of years because it's just dry nonfiction and it's, some of it's technical. Right. But, yeah. The one you mentioned, Man's Search for Meaning, I think for our young boys who are trying to find themselves and find their path. Short, easy book. Um, great place for them to Jill start. Jill Bolte-Taylor's My Stroke of Insight. God, there's just so many good books out there. Um, or reading about, if you have a, if you like sports, reading about from great coaches and great minds and great mm-hmm. leaders, um, mm-hmm. people who have achieved something have a lot to say about um, and a lot of lessons for us to, to learn. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love looking for when I want to get better at something, looking for whoever is out there that is the best and trying to learn from them. That, I've kind of been able to found my life on that because you can read a book of someone's 30 or 40 years of experience that they've condensed down to 300 pages and boy think about the tremendous impact that that has yeah. they've you know in in a couple in a week or two weeks you read that book and you have tremendous insight mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. what would you want to leave parents with today i think what i would say that we can't always control i guess i mean again i have little kids right <laughs> um we can't control what they do yeah. but we I think we, uh, we uh, I th- at least I look at it as we have a responsibility to be better, to become better people. Like you're always talking about, you're always, that's what you're doing is giving people resources. We have a responsibility as parents to be more, to be more, to do more, to become more ourselves. And um, it's funny what happens when you, imp- when we take care of, better care of ourselves, you know, you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You need to be on stable ground yourself. And we have a responsibility of, you know, I see a lot of, I've seen a lot of kids over the years and it's like, it's as if no wonder this kid is a train wreck. Look at his parents or her parents. I mean, and in that way, um, I think that would be my instinct is to say we can do better. We can, we can read more. We can do more. We can, are we doing as good as we can as, as human beings? Um, that's probably at least from my perspective. Um, well, thank you so much for being here and being on my podcast. And um, I'm excited to, to track your journey and see where you go next and how, how much fun you have raising your own kids and where your career goes with your apps. I think that you've got some really, really cool things coming up. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate you having me. And, and um, before we leave, I would say... I don't know you well, but I, I really love everything that you're doing. And um, I don't know how to say it, but I'm, I'm really proud of everything you're creating. It's, it's instrumental. So thanks for having me. We want to thank Radio 1190 for letting us use their space. If you like what you heard today and want to become a sponsor or make a donation, you can find us at penbv.org. That's P-E-N-B-V dot org. We hope today's conversation has added to your parenting well. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, and you've been listening to Parenting Well Podcast. Until next time, happy parenting.